Hi there, this is Cindy Tonkin. I'm the Consultants Consultant. I work with data science teams, helping them work even smarter, faster and nicer. If you're brilliant and you want to be even better, this is the podcast for you. So today I have Chris Cook from Nature Research. Yep. Chris, just, Chris and his organisation just won a B&T last year. Do you want to tell us about what the B&T is, Chris? Yeah, well, um, uh, we won the, uh, the award, which is the Agency of the Year, which, is, um, which was great, 2018. Um, I think there was five agencies shortlisted on that and it was a great opportunity. I think that one of the main things for us was it, it forced us to articulate a lot of things about ourselves, which before that we hadn't really done a lot of the cultural assets that we'd been sitting on. At that stage, we'd been around for 12 years and mm-hmm. hadn't really thought about how best to talk talk about the culture we'd developed and um, what that meant to us and how important it was um, in terms of who we are as a team and what that mm-hmm. meant for our clients and um, uh, what it means to the people who work here and what it means for recruitment and how we work and how... I guess distinctive we are in the market. So the process of even applying for the for the award was in itself a rewarding experience. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it was incredibly rewarding, and we um, are thinking about that and considering those questions, and then articulating them in written form crystallizes a lot of mm. things about your, I guess, collective identity, which is valuable in and of itself. Um, and on top of that, to, to win the award was, was magnificent. Yeah, it was awesome. Um, yeah. It was really kind of Kind of like a bit like when a, I guess, a, I don't know, like an under sevens soccer team get their first jersey or something. Yeah, to yeah. Real sort of, it's a big day. So it was, and I suppose it's nice to get the external validation because yeah. you you know you're doing well anyway. But then on top of that, to get that award was just a really nice, a nice thing, and a really nice thing for the team as well because we all work pretty hard. But to to get that. Um, recognition was was pretty special. Fabulous. Um, yeah, it's true. So, so what do you guys do? What we do? Well, I suppose we we like to think of ourselves as being in as uh, in the consulting business, strategic uh-huh. insights consulting. Uh-huh. At the end of the day, we're a, a, a group of people who work with people, our clients. Uh-huh. We seek to understand people, that is, consumers or customers. Uh-huh. We just happen to use data to do so. Um, there's lots of different types of data that we leverage or use to do so, uh-huh. but what we try to accentuate or sort of really focus on there in that whole thing are human skills as opposed to tech skills. We're not in the business of bringing in technology or, um, you know, offshore built tech or data or solutions or black box solutions which we can sell. Mm-hmm. What we're in the business of doing is sitting down with our clients and understanding the problems they're there trying to solve for and then building interesting you know, research or data-based solutions around those problems. Mm-hmm. And what's fascinating about that is that it involves creativity, listening, consulting skills, oh as opposed to sort of, you know, <laughs> hard-edged tech-based skills. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's quite exciting and there's a great freedom yeah. in that for us. Yeah, okay, so um, in terms of the questions we've got, I've got a heap and I always ask the same ones. Yeah, great. Uh, so it gives us some interesting, because sometime, at some point, I'm going to turn this into proper research, right? Okay. I've got information yep. about stuff. Um, so talk to me, what are your kind of personal routines for working smarter? Are there things that you do that give you an edge, you believe, or that stop you from losing your edge? Um, 
I, I suppose I, I gave up a long ago on forming a distinction in my mind between work and non-work life. I oh, sort of interesting. I, yeah. I believe that um, the human brain can solve problems when and how and where it wants to. In the shower is often a well, yeah. place. <laughs> and, and, and that if you fight that, you're sort of, you're fighting a losing battle. Yeah. I mean, I think we all know that you can get the, the best answers to the most complex questions at times that are well outside the, the nine to five yeah. ethos that's kind of imposed on us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, equally, Flexibility works the other way as well. Um, one should, you know, take the time within those hours to exercise flexibility the other way as well. So I kind of, I, I, I sort of don't work in that sort of black and white a kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you kind of start your own business and run your own business, there's a degree to which it's always with you, whether you like that or not. And I think that one of the key things is you need to learn very early on not to fight or resent that, but to embrace, to embrace it and to own it and okay. to learn ways of managing and dealing with it. Mm-hmm. Um, even when I'm on a, a holiday, a week away or a month away, um, you're never truly switched off. What you learn mm-hmm. to do is switch on and off in much finer or short periods of time. Um, I might check an email or write an email and be on for 10 minutes, but then I'll switch off for three hours and then on for 10 minutes, but that's a learned skill, um, which is is fine. So within that as well, I believe that people are capable of adaptation and learning through the course of time. Yes. So that's sort of a macro approach to work that yeah. I have. It's like running a farm, isn't it? It's not like the farm ever stops growing stuff. No. You just have to at some point walk away from the planting or the sowing or the whatever that you're doing. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's and right. then checking. Yeah, yeah. That's right. And I suppose that reflects as well. You kind of, to be like successful and, you know, running a successful business, you need to be passionate about it and involved in it. And that's not a, a nine to five kind of thing. No. It, that doesn't mean as well that one is a workaholic because I place a hell of a lot of value on things that outside mm-hmm. my work life, like family, um, health, wellbeing, fitness, etc. And without those things, to be honest, work doesn't really mean anything at all so it really is about balance but it's about exercising the right flexibility and freedom to do what one needs to do and it starts with the to mash shift. it all together yeah. yeah and and within that the way to do that is to be incredibly organized with your time oh, okay. to, to maximize jamming it all in really so how do you get incredibly organized with your time oh, focusing what, thinking what, what habits and <coughs> Patterns do you have? You know, you run a diary, I'm assuming. I do, yes. Um, are there other things? Do you have someone who looks after your diary? Do you No, know? no. No, I'm a, I'm a self-diary running kind of person <laughs> as opposed to a uh, letting other people do that for me yeah. kind of person. Yeah. Um, I... Uh, I, mean, I don't. I, I do run an Outlook diary, and I kind of stick to that. And I, I also adopt a. I don't have a set and forget policy on that. It's a constantly evolving um, tapestry that evolves on a, <coughs> a daily, half daily, few hourly basis. One can't set their diary in the modern world 
on a weekly basis and then think it's set and forget. It's constantly chopping and changing and one's manicuring and curating it the whole time um, as things evolve and change. Mm -hmm. And you've got to be moving between organising one's life and the, the few or days or weeks ahead and the now, mm-hmm. um, the micro and the macro. And that's, that's again, a learned skill. Mm-hmm. I think one of the other learned skills is negotiating the tension between focusing on deep tasks and yes. deep thinking, which had to do with today and tomorrow and now, versus longer-term thinking about next week, next month next year and that's an incredibly hard thing to do and that takes discipline to carve out the time to do the latter Um, because it's the important but not urgent tasks that need to get done don't get done become urgent and important that's right and that's a challenge for me it's a challenge for I think certainly everyone in this business Mm -hmm. um, in different ways Um, but it's but it's there uh, we spend a lot of time with people in the business, like mentoring and coaching them on how to negotiate and, I guess, approach that challenge. Yeah. Uh, so it's the push back fun. on things that can't be done and the acceptance of this will have to be done and I'm going to have to work out a way to make it happen. That's right, yeah, yeah. So how did you get to now? Where did you come from? What was your kind of path to this? I worked uh, agency side for... Several years before this, I worked for a multinational mm-hmm. for a while. Um, I asked myself the question there after some years, do I want to continue on this path and move up the chain, perhaps into a regional managerial role, which would mean distancing myself ultimately from what got me into this in the first place, mm-hmm. which is problem solving, doing consumer research, mm-hmm. hands on the tools, etc. I felt that the answer to that was that I was interested in, you know, staying close to being a researcher. So I mm-hmm. took the opportunity to, at that time, start the Melbourne office of a Sydney um, business up a number mm-hmm. of years ago, which was a great opportunity because it gave me the autonomy yeah. and freedom to, to to drive growth in that business, yet backed by what was a great brand. Mm-hmm. Um, that gave me the self-belief to maybe start That's my own thing. Yeah. And for various reasons, the timing was right for me what is now 13 years ago to do this. Yeah, um, fabulous. You've always been in the insights kind of yeah, area. You, yeah. haven't, you haven't skipped over from food technology. Or no, 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 like no. My background before that was to, I was a social scientist. And did okay, it. right, yeah, so you, it's kind of... That's right, so it's always been... Stayed within that... That thing, yeah. Specialty. Because yeah, right. some, some people are like, you came from where? Okay, great. You used to be a, I don't know, engineer and now you're a something else. I did say, I did spend some time client side at Telstra yeah, for a yeah. while in an insights mm-hmm. role there as mm-hmm. the director of insights analytics um, about a dozen years ago. And that was really valuable because when you get the perspective of looking at the same things you do from the client side, mm-hmm. you have a penny drop moment when you realise what it is that our audience now really needs from our work. Mm -hmm. And when you understand that, it lets us really focus our effort on what counts. Exactly. So Um, you're walking a mile in the shoe of the customer because you are the customer. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, That was really, really valuable. Yeah. 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 Cool. Excellent. What can can you tell me about... I'm, I'm going to enlarge it. Well, usually I ask what's a better data person. Yeah. Um, but given that you've got you more of in, your insights, I, which I'm sure you use data to do, but yes. what makes a better insight slash data person in your experience? To me, there's a, there's a 
anyone who works in research, insights, data analytics, I think of there being a spectrum of skill sets. And everyone I see, I think of a, a, a range of skill sets ranging from back room people through front room is how mm-hmm. I think of it. Yeah. And the, the most valuable territory is that in the middle. Um, there are a lot of people who are very, very back room who have who possess incredible analytic skills, technical skills, mm-hmm. but perhaps uh, limited um, social interactional skills or relationship management skills, mm-hmm. their ability to, to deal with clients or to um, understand business or marketing problems and add value in a client relationship maybe limited. Mm-hmm. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got people who have the gift of the gab, really understand business and marketing issues, but don't have a strong grasp of anything technical. They are also at one of the spectrum, but in the middle, people who can move fluidly between both, who have got strong technical background, but then also have an appreciation and understanding of business and marketing language mm-hmm. and how large organisations work, that is an incredibly valuable asset or skill to have. And the aspects of that are partly that empathy which you spoke before about you know, working client side so you could understand how the clients work. Yeah. Part of that is, is one of those skills. Are there any other skills? I, I think a lot of it comes down to like personal skills around um, like emotional intelligence skills around mm-hmm. active listening and understanding and skills around being able to perceive and understand what a client is ultimately interested in and mm-hmm. needs out of the the professional relationship one has with them. Mm-hmm. So then one can work out how one uses one's most valuable asset, their time, yeah. in addressing the client's needs. Mm-hmm. They're not technical skills. They're applied relationship skills. Yeah, they're the kind of people skills. They're softer skills. skills. They're people skills, right? Um, but if, if, a, if, the, if an individual can have both those skills, but then the conceptual skills to frame up a problem in in conceptual terms, and then the technical skills or some degree of technical skills to either do technical work themselves or to have a meaningful conversation with a highly technical person, Mm -hmm. that's a very powerful skill set. Yeah, that's a nice combo. So one of the language terms that we use today is that of the the data translator. Yes, I was going to ask you about that exactly. Yeah, who's the person who, if you think about that, has the wherewithal to talk to a person in a client organisation who might not be particularly data savvy, who is a a business person who's got uh, commercial needs, Mm -hmm. who they've got questions or information gaps they need filled. Mm -hmm. The data translator is the person who can work out, well, what are the sources of information or data I can procure Mm -hmm. to answer my client's needs Mm -hmm. and make sense of those and simplify, condense, clarify and like build confidence in my client in relation to those questions. And that skill set is a quasi-technical one, yeah. but it's a quasi-applied one and consulting one. Yes. Um, like the role that we as an agency try and play is right in that sweet spot as a right. spot. Yeah, because it makes perfect sense. You've got insights on both sides of the fence. That's yeah. right. It also makes you data agnostic, whether you need qualitative data, quantitative data, data from you know, social media scrapings, financial data, primary research data, 
um, transactional database data, it doesn't matter where the data's coming from, sure. they're all valuable inputs that one can leverage to answer the client's questions. Yeah. Um, nice. And technology also plays a role in that whole equation as well. Yeah. So, and that's why when we discuss and describe ourselves, we, I guess, accentuate and stress the human side of things as opposed to the data and the tech side of things, because to us at the end of the day, the data and tech, they're ultimately, they're a commodity. The value that can be added to the commodity is through the human. Mm, mm, totally, exactly. And in the end, we want to solve a problem. That's right. Or That's we want right. to get insight on how to solve a problem. That's right. Exactly. That's right. Nice. Um, talk to me about uh, how do you recruit? So if you're recruiting, you've got a special, like it's a special job description there. Mm. How, do you, how do you go about making sure you get the right person? Well, uh, a lot goes into that. Um, we recruit directly from the market. We've also got external recruiters that, that help us in that respect. Mm-hmm. You've got people who um, watch the right we, we, do, we do, but once we have people sort of in the conversation with us, um, we the first thing we do is take our time to make sure we get the right people. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're quite risk averse. Mm-hmm. Um, we're a small team of um, sort of 25 to 30 people. Okay, so that you pull in another one, it makes it, it can change the balance. Yeah, and, and culture is super important to us and cultural fit and making sure that um, people are going to add to and bring something new but also, you know, not upset the apple cart is incredibly important. Mm-hmm. Um, we get people in the team to meet people before we, we hire them so okay. they kind of give the rubber stamp. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to skills testing, it's, there's a couple of things that go into that. One is called technical. Mm-hmm. Um, Solve the, this problem, use this database. Well, yeah, but the degree to which it is technical depends on the role. It's so you'll give them a, some kind of case study? To, correct, to correct. There'll be, a, there'll be a case study. But all the way through that, we're watching really, really carefully for softer human relationship yeah. skills yeah. things because they're the things we really place value on, which is around how well are they going to work with people in the team? Mm-hmm. How well are they going to work with our clients? Can we set them loose on clients A, B and C? To what degree can they operate independently in that regard? Mm-hmm. And that's on top of the technical skills which support the work they'll be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a real mix of evaluation mm-hmm. on those things. And, it, and it's hard. And the because then you get everybody into a room and go, do you think this person will fly? That's right. We do. It's sort of a... Uh, I'm going to say committee. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's collaboration. A of, collaboration. It's a group of people deciding yeah. on whether the, the fit is there or not. Mm-hmm. But it's an incredibly important decision to get right. And if you do get it right, what you have is a team which hums and sticks together really well and that, that stays together through the course of time. Mm-hmm. The other thing that we have done really quite well in the last few years especially is worked a lot internally on ways of working mm-hmm. and building a, an operating rhythm and culture which gets great internal communication happening mm-hmm. and collaboration occurring. So how are you doing that? Just through lots and lots of conversation and mm-hmm. affecting change. Maybe what a big company would call transformation. Mm-hmm. Like our version of transformation is uh, conversation, conversation, conversation and uh like talking about key themes and why they're important Mm -hmm. and then talking with people about what needs to be done and what the benefits are in doing so. So what kind of themes do you talk about? 
Um, some of the big themes, well, some of the big agency themes for us are around really getting close to understanding our clients. So can we call it client mm-hmm. intimacy yeah. Yeah. is important. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, something we call targeted perfectionism, which is this idea of honing in on exactly what is important to the client and listening very, very carefully to that and then using your most valuable resource, your time, to address those things mm-hmm. as opposed to things which are not as principally important to them. Mm-hmm. Which we might be curious about but maybe doesn't solve their problem or isn't what they yeah, ask for. Yeah, that's exactly right, which is to do with active listening yeah. um, and there's, there's, there's an efficiency play in there. Mm-hmm. There's also a meeting clients' needs play in there as well because mm-hmm. all of our clients today, I believe, are living in the corporate world of limited time. Uh-huh. They don't particularly have an appetite for long PowerPoint decks. Uh-huh. What they want is the answer to their questions articulated succinctly on a plate and not having to sift through a hundred slides to find the answer. Yeah. They're looking to us to give them the answer in an easy to digest way. Hence the targeted perfectionism. Correct. It's a three-slide deck that tells them exactly what they need. Yeah, three or twenty, but not a hundred. Yeah, exactly. Right? It's that. It's like the um, the Pachachka ignite format. You know, you've got five minutes. The slides advance every twenty seconds. You just have to fit your world into that five. Yeah, minutes. that's right. I, I sort of believe that, like, the more <clears throat> the length of a PowerPoint presentation blows out, the more it's becoming a self-indulgent exercise in... Absolutely. So they're, they're two big themes. And the other internal one is probably, like, it's it's almost don't be a silo in a way. It's, it's You've got, you know, 25 great people here and uh, rather than sort of forge it alone mm-hmm. and be an individual researcher... Powerhouse, yeah. Powerhouse. It's, you know, leverage the, the colleague over there because mm-hmm. there might be something that they can add and next time you can add something to them. And if we can get that right, it's called teamwork and collegiality. Yeah. And it might take a little longer this time, but next time it'll be a time gain. Um, talk to me about our professional development for yourself. How do you professionally develop? Besides the fact that your clients are giving you, obviously, new challenges every second of the day, is there yeah. other things you, what do you, how do you keep up? Um, I, that's a good question. I think, like, one of the, that there's, I suppose there's two aspects to to my professional development. One is around like growth in like managerial and leadership stuff. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, the second is then technical areas of capability for the business. Uh-huh. Um, with the first of those, my trajectory has gone through the years of being hands-on researcher through you know, early stage formation of business owner through growing the business up. And a lot of that is learnt just on the job, on the job and having an open mind and then, you know, having various, you know, there's a bit of trial and error in stuff as well. A lot of penny drop moments as well when you realise what works and what doesn't and thinking through things. Um, I read things as well. Do you have any favourite books or recent books that you, or articles or sites that you rely on? Not nothing, nothing particularly notable. They're mm-hmm. just they're, they're things that I've read over the years that just form a, a generalised perspective about 
a model or paradigm of leadership and what I kind of aspire to wanting to be mm-hmm. as opposed to not wanting to be. Mm-hmm. And what and is that thing that you want to oh, yeah. It's about trying to create a culture of openness and inclusion and freedom and a, a company which is like flat and where people feel like they have the capacity to influence. Mm-hmm. Really the, the antithesis of a large multinational where right. someone doesn't feel like they can go and talk to the senior person because of hierarchy mm-hmm. or where someone thinks, oh, I've got a great idea um, but I don't feel empowered to raise this topic because I'm not allowed to yeah. or or the disheartened version of that, which is that there's no point in raising this because nothing will ever happen, whereas the culture we've created here is one where any person at any time can come to me or any of the other senior people and say, hey, I've got an idea, here it is, what do you think? And what happens is that we, we stop what we're doing immediately and say that's a great idea and issue the challenge of let's get on with it mm-hmm. and can you lead it mm-hmm. and I'd love to see it done in two weeks. Yeah. You know, I mean, no, maybe it's not two weeks, maybe it's a month, maybe it's a week. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe that's scary, but like, but that's, that's the sign to me of a, an organisation which moves quickly mm-hmm. and empowers people to take control and responsibility of both their own destiny. There's no barriers and nothing holding people back at all. But also they can influence agency direction as well. Yeah. Um, so there's a freedom in that and the capacity to influence. Um, the other thing about the place is that people have got to be up for the, the adult conversation as well. Okay, um, what do you mean like, by the adult? Well, we tend, we're a feedback culture and mm-hmm. we believe in giving people feedback constantly along the way because inside feedback is where people grow. Yeah. And all of our people say they really value that and want that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's so many examples in this business of where people have grown a lot in their mm-hmm. professional lives because we've had the courage to give them careful, constructive feedback, sometimes on topics that are pretty kind of hard to talk about and pretty close to sort of, you know, like personal issues, right? Mm -hmm. But because we've done that and they've been okay with us talking about them and they've taken them on and they've got, you know, we've sort of sponsored external coaches to, Mm -hmm. to, to, to talk and help people in their journey, they've prospered and profited and being promoted or whatever the, the, the outcome of that is, right? Because they've been through the hard stuff. Yeah, but, but that also, the product of that is trust. Yes. Two-way trust, because there's there's integrity and honesty in the conversation as opposed to avoidance of the truth, which I believe undermines the strength of the relationship mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, totally. And that's what I mean by the adult conversation. Yeah, yeah. There's no um, comfort in the growth zone. There's no growth in the comfort zone. So yeah. We've got to be uncomfortable to yeah. be making change, which means we have to bring up those topics that aren't necessarily something that would necessarily be brought up in a in a bigger organisation. Be like, we'll just let it ride. That's right. It's not my responsibility. Yeah. I think the other thing is, uh, like, our behaviour as senior leaders, the business consistency of decisions and behaviour and the treatment of others is incredibly important mm. from a. a 
in every respect. It, it sort of sets the tone of stuff. And underlying that is a, is a reflexive, self-reflective journey because, I mean, basically from, a very, from everything you've spoken about essentially says I'm working on myself all the time. I'm working on what am I doing, how am I doing this and what do I do. You're a, you're a, you're a, you're a learner, like your brain is learning all the time and yeah. learning from that and making difference. Yeah. And I don't think everybody has that. No, and we're pretty self-deprecating as well. And when I say we, so Peter Stutchbury, my business partner, mm-hmm. um, and I, we're, we're self-deprecating and mm. constantly are trying to make it clear to people that we really don't think that we're perfect. Oh, no, clearly. <laughs> I mean, no, and nobody is. No, like, you know, no. If you, if you no. aren't it's working out what you can do next, what are you doing? Yeah. But the answer is, well, you just then I guess you, that's how people end up being boring. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. That's one of the worst things I could say about anyone. Oh my God, they're boring. Um, the other example is, is the technical capability stuff and yeah. building uh, or sort of growth, mm-hmm. which is like individual growth, but then also plugs into agency capability as well. Mm-hmm. Um, part of that's about reading and staying tuned to industry developments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, part of it's about plugging into global agendas as well. So Pete and I have just come back from a, um, an important conference over in Europe, mm-hmm. um, something called SMR Fusion. So SMR is the European mm-hmm. Society of Market Research, which mm-hmm. is the main kind of global body. Mm-hmm. And there was an important conference we went to in Madrid a few <coughs> weeks ago, which is all about the future of the kind of data analytics and yeah, research which is world. Everything's moving so quickly. Yeah, and that's just an example of um, uh, us yeah. plugging into that to both validate things that we're already doing and also give us a window into what people in uh, you know, Western and Eastern Europe and North America mm. are doing. Looking for the, the next big thing. Correct, yeah. Um, and do you speak at conferences too? Yeah, we do. We do. Yeah. We didn't speak at that one. Mm-hmm. That was more of a, a learning and development trip. Mm-hmm. But, um, Plus it was Madrid. Yeah, yeah good. we're only on the ground for three and a half days, but we really we, we, we enjoyed ourselves as well. Did you did you stay awake for the whole time? I'd have been just wrecked <laughs> flying to Europe. I'm like, no, the first day is just lost. We shook off the jet lag on the last day, and then we got on the plane to come home and yeah. had it all again. So it was a bit of a problem. Um, uh, we we speak. There's a there's a local national body for the research industry as well. Mm-hmm. We regularly speak at those conferences, and because mm-hmm. we're regularly innovating in different methods that we we uh, work in here mm-hmm. as well. And one of the things we do is also invest in like self funded research right. here. So one of the topics we've just done a lot of work on is data privacy and right. security. Yes. Looking at very hot topic consumer yes. attitudes toward sharing personal data mm. online and the exchange of that for, for targeted advertising, etc., mm. and how that plays out. And then you publish that somewhere? We do. So um, like Mark Ritson picked that up and published it in the Australian and Marketing Week, for example. Nice. Um, but it's also a topic which is hot, so all of our clients want us to go and present that to them. Nice reason to get back to see the clients. Correct, yeah. yeah. That's, a, that's a good example of how to drive customer intimacy yeah. as well. So, um, and there's lots of, and then we're doing a piece of work right now on sustainability. We've done something recently on meal delivery services and Uber Eats because that's a massively growing industry, which yeah. is, um, you know, most of us use pretty regularly as mm-hmm. well. That's just good examples of that as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So yeah, part of, so part of your professional development is essentially doing research that's not a client thing, but that actually 
feeds your curiosity and yeah. in a targeted manner yep. also gives you exposure to new ideas that feed into your clients. Yeah, we'll, we'll identify topical topics and then we'll do research on them and then the advantage of that for us is that we own the data and the yes. information and we can do what we want with them yeah, for our own PR purposes. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's professional development and it's business development. Exactly, all, all wrapped up in one. Um, what about um, complex explanations? Because you'd be there'd be lots of stuff would be quite complex. How do you kind of how do you approach those? It, it all depends on the audience, okay. um, ultimately, and, and sometimes complex explanations can be complex if the audience wants or needs the complexity. Um, so for example, Pete is a, an actuary, my business partner, and if he's dealing with a, a room of actuaries or um, analysts, then yeah. the level of complexity is high. Yeah. But if it's talking to a group of people who are far less numerate than that, mm-hmm. that needs to be boiled down. And, yeah. and that fits really well with the general skill set of the business, which is ultimately about taking complexity and simplifying it or boiling it down mm. into simplicity. Um, uh, it's kind of just fundamental to our sort of DNA of how we do that. We don't have a, a straightforward, single off the rack process of doing so. Mm. I think that like we don't generally use analogies or different ways into that, but I think that the rule of building up the reveal of information to immerse someone slowly into complexity mm-hmm. is always a good to tactic. To start with what they know and as opposed to what they don't know. Exactly, as opposed to dropping them in it. Yeah. Um, I, I, the answer's 42, but now I'm going to have to explain <coughs> to you what the hell that means. That's right. Yeah. I mean, even in the most basic uh, research presentation to a, a non if it's a quantitative research presentation mm-hmm. to a non-quantitative audience, if a slide contains more than a dozen numbers on it, if the presenter is not very, very conscious of that mm-hmm. in how they present that slide, it's overwhelmed. It's overwhelmed and the audience can be lost and totally bamboozled because their ability to, to digest and consume and make sense of that is just simply not the same as that of a different audience mm-hmm. or the presenter who they themselves already know what's going on mm-hmm. in the slide, which means the, the role of the presenter there is not just in that instance about saying what the, the implications of the slide are, but perhaps carefully walking through what the slide is actually showing mm-hmm. in a more ground grounds up kind of way. So it's quasi-educational. Yeah. Um, so people can be have their sort of hand held through it and then talking about and what it means is the following. Yeah. So you take people on the journey with you. Yeah. And, 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 and I suppose implicit in that whole thing, again, comes back to client intimacy and knowing your audience. Yeah. It's just so important because all of our clients, there's no two of our clients that are the same. They're all different. And how we work with or service one, it's got to be totally a function of who they are, the pressures they're under, what they're being asked to do, what's on their mind, how numerate they are, Mm -hmm. how they digest information, what what the organisational culture is when it comes to the role of data, Mm -hmm. what kind of evidence do they need to make decisions? Is it it 
heavily quantitative or is it more qualitative in nature? Mm. Like, what is it that, that, that drives them? Do they want you to just tell them or do they want, do they want you to step them through it? So it becomes a customised explanation. That's right. Do they, do they want us to make a, a recommendation or do they just want the evidence? So they can make a decision themselves Correct. from three options. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah nice. Mm. I keep thinking of the Hans Rosling stuff on TED. If you, I'm sure you've seen it because everybody has where he talks, where he takes you through like a whole heap of data, but yeah. because of the way it's animated and because of the way he presented it, it's it's kind of like, this is accessible now. Yes. Um, That's and, exactly. Yeah, and it's kind of beautiful work. Yeah. If you haven't listened to Hans Rosling, go listen to Hans Rosling. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, I'm, I, I'm coming, I want to ask you about meetings. So I'm currently doing a, um, I'm just asking uh, people about meetings and how much time people spend in meetings and what makes them better and what makes them worse. Do you have opinions on meetings? Oh, yes. And? Yes. So I've, I've, I did spend time working in a corporate, which I mentioned before, mm-hmm. and I have a very clear memory of that being a meeting culture place where mm-hmm. it seemed that Every meeting had two halves. The first half was talking about what happened in the last meeting, and the second half was almost discussing what we were going to do in the next meeting. But never discussing yep. action making decision today. Yep. Yeah. And this would happen in every meeting, and every day was full of meetings every day, mm-hmm. which meant that no one ever did actually any productive, tangible work, including until me, the day was until ended. after the day was ended, which imparted a lot of stress on everybody. Mm-hmm and wasn't particularly fun, which has implications for work-life balance, yeah. right? If you believe in that stuff. If you believe in that stuff, <laughs> because it made there was no balance, no. right? It was just chaos because of the dysfunctionality of meeting culture. Mm-hmm. I suspect that PowerPoint was a little grenade in the middle of that as well as a weapon being passed around to <laughs> encourage that warfare as well. <laughs> um, we are really here now not big into meetings at all Mm -hmm. and don't believe in meetings for meetings sake Mm -hmm. we believe in a short meeting is a good meeting Mm -hmm. and getting to the point as quickly as possible Mm -hmm. um if sure we'll set up a meeting because what, what a meeting to me represents is perhaps the most important thing that a meeting represents is the bring together of people right right no more than that. And, and that is a very, very important thing. Even in a small company like mine where there's 30 people, mm-hmm. the, I guess, um, uh, what's the word? The, the um, forces of nature mean that people are drawn apart, different schedules, different client meetings. Yeah holidays, whatever it might be, the organisation needs to do everything it can to bring people together. Now, meetings are one mechanism where that, why that can occur. But within the meeting, if one's not careful, meetings can, can blow out and just consume an unnecessarily long period of time and become a thing unto their own. Yes. The way we deal with that is simply that if a 60-minute meeting has been set, we work through them quickly, and if an answer is formed after 20 minutes, then we stop the meeting. We just go back to 
doing what we were doing. On the other hand, if we need longer, then we take longer. Yeah. Um, so it's a pretty sort of flexible approach. I'm so, I've just, a thought has occurred to me. How do we distinguish between discussions and meetings? Because you can have a discussion between four people that's incredibly um, productive and it's, yeah. it's while we're making a cup of tea. Yeah. Um, just as easily as you can have a meeting with four people that isn't productive, depending on where you are. Um, or, or is there a difference between a discussion and a meeting? I, maybe the distinction point... I think one of the things that organisations fail to do often is take action. Yes. There's a lot of discussion, there's a lot of hot air, mm -hmm. but often not a lot of action. And a meeting is something that should result in an action. Yes. And a lot of meetings don't result in actions. Yeah, kind of catch-ups and yeah. reiterations, as you say, oh, here's what happened last time. Yeah. Here's what we were going to do. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, a discussion... I mean, a discussion could be a better discussion if it led to an action. Mm -hmm. um, if a discussion was to lead to a meeting to sort of more formally discuss the discussion <laughs> with, the, with the view to lead into an action. Now it's like we're in the public sector. That would be cool. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a form of, maybe call them a committee. Yeah, yeah. That's so it's going to be invited to more people. There's not enough people in the I think there probably is a distinction, but what needs, what people should be trying to do is constantly try and work out what next and so what. Mm. Um, on on the basis of things, mm. because what bring what takes people forward and what takes organisations forward are actions mm. and tangible steps, not just words. Mm. And it's very easy to talk. And the more people that are involved in discussions, unless there's clear articulation of roles and responsibility, it's so easy for actions to fall by the wayside. Yeah. And nothing um, happens. We just, we and, just and, yeah. and and that is even more true in large organisations. Oh, yeah. You know, so I think I don't know if there's a distinction between a meeting and a discussion, but I think both could benefit from from decision making and action taking. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's interesting. Cool. Um, what about favourite charity? Do you have a charity that's your favourite charity? If so, what is it? Well, we um, at home we regularly. Um, give a lot of goods to what's called St Kilda Mums, which is a, a local charity which has been started by a really impressive lady who um, has put together this charity which really it, it gives predominantly products um, to do with babies and infant children mm -hmm. to mothers and families that are um, in need. Uh -huh. nice. um, lots of different, you know, stories behind mm -hmm. what is defined by in need. Uh -huh. um, we've got three Before kids. someone else makes that decision. <laughs> Correct, yeah. But, like, we've got three kids. One's a baby who's just coming out of certain stages or whatever. So we've yeah. got, you know, cots, prams, clothes or whatever. And it costs and, so much to do all this, to get yeah. all this stuff. And so, you know, every time we kind of go through a certain phase and don't need stuff anymore. Like, we're definitely having no more kids, mm -hmm. so we're just going to give it all to St Kilda Mums. Yeah, Because nice. the, your ability to directly, positively affect someone's life is immediate yes. with that, right? Exactly. Um, it's very different from giving money to a large organisation where you don't really know what happens to it, right? No, exactly. Um, 
in business, we do a lot of pro bono work as well mm -hmm. for organisations that we um, feel some degree of affinity mm -hmm. with. We're doing some stuff right now for November, mm -hmm. um, which is cool. Um, By the way, Chris is 40 in November, though. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> and last year the team um, raised $10,000, and this year we're nice. sort of getting close to that as well. Nice. Um, we did some interesting pro bono stuff this year for the Alfred Hospital mm -hmm. um, and various other organisations as well. That we so you're out there. You definitely got some favourite charities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So which is nice to be able to do that. And um, often the work we like doing the most actually is for. I mean, we have a lot of large clients, but often the most fulfilling work we do is for small companies that mm -hmm. don't do a lot of insights work. Mm -hmm. So when you do deliver a project, it's really groundbreaking for them. Yeah. Because they haven't had empirical evidence about the consumer or customer ever yeah. um, and even if it costs well nothing in the case of pro bono or yeah. you know uh, a very very small amount to them mm -hmm. it's a sort of it's a game changer nice. and that's yeah. really cool and, and it's, it's not so much charity as uh, just uh, helping yeah 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 it's cool it's nice yeah yeah, yeah. It's good. And, and maybe instrumental in that business not going under or yeah doing better or whatever yeah. and, and, uh, I think wrapped up in that as well is that um, we never forget that we were a small business once as well. Yeah. So if a small business approaches us, we'll help them and that's cool because one day they might be a big business yeah. and they kind of deserve the help. Yeah. Um, and that's totally fine with us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so is there anything you want to say before we finish up? Um, <laughs> Damn, what a challenge. What a challenge. <laughs> um, uh, not really. I think, I think we're living in really interesting times mm -hmm. when it comes to like marketing, insights, data analytics, data science. Yes. I think a lot of people, we, we don't really know where it's going or how quickly and how long it's going to take to get wherever it's going. Uh, the skill set is rapidly evolving and I think that mm -hmm. the, the, the area that's going to profit for people trying to hone and tune their skill set and their capability, it is that middle ground between like the fully back room, mm -hmm. highly technical capability and the fully front room, more salesperson mm -hmm. oriented skill set. Like anyone who's got that hybrid skill set of um, being able to have the relationship soft skills of mm -hmm. working with clients and earning trust uh, and developing client relationships in a substantive way, mm -hmm. but then also being able to have some degree of being able to work with data mm -hmm. or at least have a meaningful conversation with a highly technically capable person, mm -hmm. that's a that's a hell of a skill set to have. Absolutely. Lots future. of researchers would be more likely to have that. Like people who've chosen researchers. I think so, yeah. There's a lot to there's, there's a lot to add mm -hmm. that skill set because it's the it's the sort of the true data translator mm -hmm. skill set. It's certainly, McKinsey been making a lot of noise about the data, the analytics translator, the data translator. So that's right. Um, there's got to be money in it because McKinsey's talking about. I'm sure, <laughs> sure there will be. Yeah. This has been fabulous, Chris. Thank you so Thank much. You, Cindy. Um, we will end it there. Done. Thank you. <laughs>
This is part of what I do to understand how it is that data scientists can be more effective in the workplace, smarter, faster and nicer. And if you have a team and you're finding them harder to manage than they could be, if you're constantly trying to squeeze more out of your budget and out of their time, and if you've got stakeholders or they've got stakeholders who are less than happy sometimes, maybe a lot more than sometimes, it can be really annoying and it can make you feel incompetent. I can help you help them get to the important problems faster, target the wasted time and save you time and money, and ultimately delight stakeholders so that you can feel competent again. It's such a good feeling. Talk to me.